kids, what's the worst job that you have to do at home? Like, what's the worst chore, you know, thing around the house that has to be done? Cleaning your room. The dishwasher? Yeah, okay. Cleaning the whole house, (laughs) yeah. I don't know about what it's like in your homes, but usually when you get a couple of siblings, it starts to be a bit of an order of prestige about jobs, you know, who gets to do, you know, even between doing the washing up and the drying up, you know, one, one of them gets prestige, more prestige and there's a fight over who gets to do which job, even though they're basically part of the same job. But we, we have the jobs that we don't like, the jobs that are the menial jobs, the ordinary jobs, the ones that don't have any flash, or the ones that might actually be very grubby and dirty. When Jesus walked the earth 2,000 years ago, one of the worst jobs was cleaning people's feet. You see, uh, people only had sandals. Thanks, uh, Adam, for being at the, the display today. He's got sandals on, just so everybody knows. <laughs> He was showing them off before. But in the Middle East, even today, people walk around in sandals. It's hot and, um, yeah. But back in Jesus' day, people wore uh, sandals around. They didn't have joggers and boots to cover up their feet. And plus, it's pretty hot. But they also didn't have concrete uh, footpaths and, uh, you know, bitumen-sealed roads so they could walk around on nice, clean areas. They had dirty, dusty, grubby streets. And so if you wanted to go out, you know, let's say you're going out to dinner, you'd, you'd, you'd get dressed up at home, have a bath, get all dressed up nice. But then on your way to wherever you had to go, you had to walk through the dusty, dirty streets. And so your feet would get all uh, messy and, and dirty on the way. And so that meant that good hosts would always have water and towels ready to go so that when the guests arrived, they could wash their feet on the way in. And the more well-to-do people would have staff, I'm using the word staff in inverted commas, really slaves, who would wash your feet for you. They would usually recline at low tables for dinner and for eating. So it was all the more important to wash your feet given that other people were going to probably be in the vicinity of your feet while they were eating But this foot-cleaning work was reserved for the lowest class of people who were around, like slaves or servants. No well-to-do person of any prestige would even consider lowering themselves to such a degrading work. It It was beneath them. Many of us want to live lives that lift us above the menial and grubby jobs that we hate, or at least dislike. And in fact, we start to see it as a measure of success. The wealthier you are, the more people you can employ to look after all those jobs that you don't like doing. You know, whether it's uh, cleaning the house or cooking your food or trimming your trees or washing your clothes or even other people to do the grocery shopping for you and plonk it at your door. We are quick to think that something is beneath us when we either have people or machines that could do the work for us. I will even admit to getting a little offended by a cashier the other day at a hardware shop uh, who did the barest minimum to help me while I was wrangling a two-year-old. Now, I didn't say anything to that person at the moment, but I sure complained to Laura about it uh, later on. But I have grown accustomed to being served and honoured as the customer, and there is a right and proper kind of order in there, even those small um, 
you know, uh, client uh, relationships, but I was unrighteously offended that I hadn't got what I wanted or what I thought I deserved, even in that brief little interaction. Our passage today tells us about a guy who flips the order on its head. Our natural human tendency is to elevate ourselves away from the inconvenient and the filthy. And as our reputation and prestige grows, we're, in, we're incensed by the idea that we have to stoop so low and do such ordinary work. I mean, do you think the Prime Minister cleans his own toilets at the lodge? How do you think he would respond if that was part of the job description? I think there'd be a little bit of uh, frustration and annoyance, to put it lightly. Yet in our passage, here is a man who is the king of the universe, who deserves to be enthroned in glory with the praises of a 100,000 legions of angels. But he's found at the feet of some Jewish fishermen, cleaning off the dust and grime from the streets like a domestic slave. This is different. This is a, a paradigm shift. This is the power of love and humility through Christ. We're going to look at this passage in five sections, picking up straight where we left last time, continuing this unfolding story of Jesus Christ in the book of John. This book was written so that you could believe and have life in Jesus' name, eternal life. So let's look at these five sections to unpack this passage. The first verse is a bit of a, a section heading. We're, we're going into a new section of the book of John here. Now, I've already basically said there's two halves of John. There's the, the signs where he's wandering around doing his ministry and doing the signs. And then there is the, the week in the lead up to uh, Jesus' crucifixion and then eventually, spoiler alert, his resurrection and what happens after that. So the book is basically divided in half there with the signs in the first half and then the passion uh, and resurrection in the second. But then within this second part, there is this extended period of teaching around the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Supper itself, but around at the time of the Last Supper. And so it's almost as though, uh, yeah, so in the last passage, we heard, we've heard about the hour has arrived, the hour that Jesus had been waiting for, the key moment where everything was going to come to a critical head in his ministry. The hour is here, he has been saying now. And it's like a switch has been flicked. Now the hour is here. He is making his final preparations to depart. And how does he do that? Well, he's going to have this extended period of teaching at the Lord's Supper about how the disciples should live with Jesus gone. It's a school of discipleship for them in those final moments about the, the final preparations for how do you live when Jesus is gone? What... what yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> and really reminding them about these things because they would fall into the temptation of thinking that everything's fallen apart. So Jesus has to basically prepare them for what's coming so that they know what to do. This is how the section starts. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So it's a, it's a bit of a summarizing statement of where they, we are up to at that moment. The hour has come, and then what happens? 
So this is just before the Passover. When Jesus found out that his hour had come. This is, this is when it was triggered by the arrival of some outsiders seeking Jesus, some Greeks. And Jesus knew the hour had come. He knew that it was time. He knew his mission. And so he knew that it was time to return to the heavenly realms after the climactic moments of his mission. He knew what he was doing. Everything was deliberate. Everything was on track. Nothing was out of place. Even though it might seem random, Jesus knew what was happening and what was coming. And so he's going to leave the world. His earthly incarnation, you know, when he's, pres- he's God in human form as Jesus, God the Son, embodied, incarnated, But that time on earth was coming to an end and he was going back to God the Father from where he had come. But his whole time there with them, he had loved his own, those who were chosen and given to him as the 12. And as we will unpack throughout the the, the coming weeks with the rest of this teaching at the Lord's Supper, we'll see more and more about what Jesus is talking about as he's talking about his own. But having loved his own all the way to the end, Jesus never failed in that love. He never abandoned them. He wasn't going away unexpectedly and leaving them high and dry. He loved them to the end. But this this hour is coming and it's bringing everything to a head. He's using these final moments to teach his disciples. How will they carry on this mission? The first thing that he does to teach them about how to continue after he has departed is by showing them how to be humble towards one another. Jesus shows this this example. He is the humble Jesus. That's the story that we're getting into here. And this story is during supper. So we just read that title, which was before the supper, the Passover, the, the, the festival is at hand. But now it says during supper. And the question for us is, what supper? Well, it's an evening meal, obviously. But the context seems to indicate this is the last supper where Jesus famously instituted the Lord's Supper, the com- or communion as we call it, as we will celebrate momentarily. And this would put this on the Thursday before Jesus dies. This is probably them celebrating the Passover meal, but some people think it may have actually been the day before the Passover. But that would mean that he was being crucified on the day of the Passover at the same time as the Passover lambs were being crucified. But they seem to be celebrating the Passover together. And so there's, I'm just letting you know that there is arguments about the chronology, like when is this happening? What is the significance of if it's happening at this time or this time? I'm not going to tease out those, those, those lines of thought here, but I just want you to know that there is a little bit of confusion around the timing of the supper and how it sits against the backdrop of the festival. But this is the Thursday night before Jesus is to be crucified the following day. And Jesus does something interesting. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Okay, so he's at the meal. This Judas Iscariot has already been tempted, already preparing to, already ready to betray Jesus. And it's important that it writes there Judas Iscariot because remember, there's two Judases in the 12 disciples. Even though Judas has become a byword for betrayal and traitor, um, there was actually two Judases there and one of them was a, was a stand-up guy. 
<laughs> but the Judas, Judas Iscariot was the guy who'd betrayed Jesus. And look here, uh, Judas Iscariot is like a spy on the inside. You know, he's the, he's the double agent in the midst. But see here how Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew the Father had put all things under his power. That's interesting. Jesus knew that God had put all things under his power. But what does that prompt him to do? It prompts him to get up and to get dressed as a servant, to take the basins of water. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I wonder if you would do the same thing. If you knew that the Lord had put all power under you, that you were the greatest authority, would that prompt you to get up and do the lowliest menial tasks? think, Think about that. All power has been given to Jesus Christ, and he goes and humbles himself. I'm sure you have imagined what what life would be like if you had a bunch of power that you don't have now or a bunch of money that enables you to do a bunch of things. You know, what would you do with a billion dollars? What would you do if you were the prime minister or or some other person of great authority? What would you do with all that power? I'm sure you weren't thinking the first thing I'm going to do is the most ordinary, lowliest tasks of serving other people. But that's what Jesus does. Jesus washes them during the supper. He stoops down and does one of the lowliest jobs in society. He took on the role of a slave to serve his people. Now, given that this is during the meal, the question arises, well, why hadn't they washed before they started? Perhaps they had washed before they started, and now Jesus does it again as a kind of symbolic wash. But I think what's probably more likely is that they didn't have somebody who was low enough hanging around in order to wash their feet for them and so they just didn't bother so they were there at the table with dirty feet and they needed to be washed and so Jesus takes up that job himself takes on that role and that highlights just how it just highlights I suppose the pride in the people there that they would be unwilling to wash their own feet and so they would just go without because it was too demeaning work for them but that's, that's a bit of an assumption tying the dots together. That's not explicitly what it says there. It's just my opinion. But this was something poignant, that meaningful and symbolic that Jesus would come down and wash their feet, taking on the role of a slave to serve them. Intriguingly, it, it reminds us of Mary, who just a few uh, uh, paragraphs ago had washed Jesus' feet and anointed it with nard, um, washing his feet with her hair. But this was all a prelude to an even greater abasement. Yes, he was humbling himself there before them and doing the task of washing their dirty feet. But Jesus wouldn't just lay aside social custom and personal dignity on this one occasion. He is going to lay aside everything. He has already set aside the glory of living in heaven to come to earth as a child and to live on the streets of Palestine. But he also came so that he could be humbled to death. Greater has love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Jesus came to show his great love 
that he had for the Father and by extension for us by being humbled even to death on a Roman cross. It was greater condescension for him to come to heaven from heaven to earth than it was for him to as a master to wash his feet of disciples. He's already done one of the most humbling things that he could have done and putting aside the majesty and glory and honor that he was deserving of as the son of God and come and walked amongst us. But he would go even further by laying down his life for his people. And he was doing this for our benefit. His humility leads to exaltation. The way down is the way up in Christianity. We, Christ was exalted after this humiliation. And so too, when we enter into Christ and humble ourselves before him, we can receive blessing and exaltation as children of God if we trust in him. So while he was doing this amazingly humble service, Peter's pride gets in the way. There's prideful Peter who, as Peter is known to do, has just the, the worst, you know, worst timing. <laughs> Something about his his intentions is good, but it's all mixed up with impulsivity and pride. So Jesus seems to be working his way around the room, washing the disciples' feet one at a time, but then he gets to Peter. <laughs> Let's see how Peter's pride gets in the way. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. So Peter knows that this is out of order. He knows that Jesus is the master. He's not the one who should be washing his feet. He should be washing Jesus' feet, if anything. This is upside down and he feels that disconnect. And I think that's deliberate. That's... It, that, that's meant to be what they're feeling in this moment as Jesus teaches them this object lesson. He knows that he should be serving the master and yet here is the master serving him. And on the surface, that seems like an appropriate response. No, no, this is, this is I, I can't receive this. But while on the surface it seems appropriate, it's actually a bit of a holier-than-thou attitude. He, he, Peter is saying that he knows better than Jesus, if you think about it. Jesus is saying he, Peter is saying he knows better than God in flesh. And I wonder if you might have pride like that in your own life. When you think that you know better, that because you have more knowledge, because you've done more study, because you've got more life experience, perhaps you think that you know better. Your pride gets in the way, but you put a holy veneer on it. You, you use some Bible verses to justify your attitude. One of the ways that our pride can get in the way is when we think that we, that we ought not forgive ourselves. So you, go, you might think of something terrible that you've done in your life and you go, I know that God forgives me and I know that other people have forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. But that is just, that's pride. That's saying somehow that you're, your own holiness, your own kind of self-righteousness is more, is, is higher than God's requirements for righteousness and justice. So somehow you're holier than God, that God can forgive you, but you can't. That's putting yourself in a place over God.
perhaps you think that you are too far gone. I'm so, the things I've done, the, the life I've lived, I'm just too far gone. God can't save me. I'm not good enough for God. And well, that is true. You are not good enough for God. But God's love overcomes even the biggest crimes and greatest sins. You are not beyond His mercy and His grace. God's love overcomes the greatest sins. There is our own kind of self-importance and self-righteousness needs to be put aside and we need to be humbled before Jesus, even as He humbles Himself to save us. Put aside your pride. Jesus explains that this washing signifies a share in Jesus Christ. It's a non-negotiable for Peter. If you don't, if you don't um, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. So Jesus undercuts Peter's pride. But <laughs> even so, Peter's pride comes back again. Then Lord Peter, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. So Peter's pride just jumps to the opposite end now. Now that this uh, kind of, this pushback, you know, you'll never wash my feet, even that once Jesus kind of dismantled that, <laughs> Peter jumps to the other extreme. Okay, well, why stop at my feet? Do my head and my hands as well. From one extreme to the other. So from I'm too lowly for you to pay attention to me in this way to I'm so spiritual that I've won everything you've got. But he's missing the point. But we do this in our zealousness. Pride seeps in and we seek out holiness and spirituality in places where we ought not, we ought not seek it out. We, 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 we turn from, from the vain things that we had in our past and then we try and over, outdo God, what God has for us in our faith. We try to add in traditions or we go and seek out novel teaching that, that tickles our ears. We need to be humble before Christ and not try and go beyond what he has said. Um, William Barclay helpfully explains what's going on here with Peter and Jesus saying, you know, you've had a bath and you don't need to be washed. The point is this, as William says, it was the custom that before people went to a feast, they bathed themselves. And when they came to the house of their host, they did not need to be bathed again. All they needed was to have their feet washed. The washing of the feet was a ceremony which preceded entry into the house where they were to be guests. It was what we might call the washing of entry into the house. And if I could borrow that terminology, the washing of entry, this is what Jesus is doing. This symbolic washing is a washing of entry into what Jesus has for them, into the life and blessing of Jesus Christ, of the, the cleansing that Jesus offers his people. So essentially Jesus is saying, look, you've already had your share at home, so to speak, but you need the washing of entry to come into my home, into his household. To go beyond that and talk about washing heads and hands is to miss the point. Jesus saying, you need, you need to have this washing of entry. And Jesus now then turns, after he's done this, this wonderful, humble act, he goes to explain what he has done. He's explaining that it is a lived example, a lived example. It's a symbolic act that his followers are to mimic. We, we see this 
From verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So Jesus says that just as he as a master has done for his students, so you should do for one another. There's two arguments in here. There's the argument from the greater to the smaller. If the master can humble himself and wash um, wash his students' feet, then how much more should the students be able to wash each other's feet? Like that should... If the master can do something greater, then the, then the lower should be able to do something lesser. But also, there's the argument here that if you're truly following the master, you should be doing what the master does. Are you, are you have more honor than the master? The master was willing to wash each other's feet. Are you somehow more honorable than him that you sh- don't need to abase yourself in the same way? But it's entirely appropriate to have these orders of honour, as Jesus points out here, like between Jesus and his disciples. But if the person of highest honour can do this in love, how much more should we be able to abase ourselves to serve one another? One of the questions that comes up here is the question, is this something that Jesus is instrumenting as a sacrament for the church? So sacraments are the things that Jesus has, uh, the physical signs that Jesus has told us to practice. So that's what the Lord's Supper is. It's It's a sacrament. That's what baptism is. Some people prefer the language of order. Um, oh, I've just lost the word. But these these signs, um, ordinances, that's the word. Uh, so is Jesus instituting a third sacrament of foot washing? Well, I don't think so, in part because it's never anywhere else kind of commended in the same way that baptism and the Lord's Supper are. But it's also... If we turn this into a ceremonial thing that we did as a sacrament in the church, then we would actually be kind of undermining the very point that Jesus was trying to make. It would become a show of, a show of pride, I suppose, that you would come and partake in this sacrament and you would think yourself holier because of the way that you were able to do it before everybody else. So, but it's, I think it's really meant to be understood as a symbol, as a lived example of the way that disciples are supposed to live, a pattern of life. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now you know these things. You'll be blessed if you do them. So they're not to be hearers only of God's word, but doers of the word. Not hearers only, but doers. The best thing that you can do this week is gather with God's people and worship and hear from God and encourage one another. But that's not to be isolated from everything else in your life. You're not just meant to come here and be consumers of the blessings. You know, isn't this great? I'm I'm saved. I'm I'm secure with God. We've got a spiritual family. We're loved. Isn't this great? but then to go out and live, have that isolated from everything else in your life. Feel good on Sunday and then just live your life however you want on the rest of the week. There's a, there's a saying that comes from the heyday of motor racing in Australia. Uh, back in the day when you saw cars screaming around Bathurst on Sunday, they would be modified versions of what you could go and buy from the dealership on uh, the next day. And so the saying was, 
wins on Sunday mean sales on Monday. Because you'd see the cars that won the race and then you could go out and buy more or less the same kind of car on Monday morning. And so it meant that there would be aspiring car owners ready to put their money down at showrooms the next day to there would be a victory on Sunday that would turn into action on Monday from people who wanted the best and they wanted to engage, if only vicariously, in the victory that had been won the day before. And this should be something like what our spiritual life is like. There's the victory of Christ that we see on Sunday, seen and celebrated, but it should lead us going out in the light of that win to actively, to actively seek some share in it. We're not vicariously living out someone else's glory, but Jesus actually invites us to follow him in his example and to receive a share of the winnings in the life to come, to participate in what he is doing and in what he has won and this good news that is going out across the world. It leads to action. Do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Spiritual knowledge leads to blessing only when it is put into action. Or as uh, the cliche from, the, from previous years, they would talk about head knowledge uh, needs to lead to action with your hands. The, the head and the heart and the hands need to all be working together. But in our last section, we see the traitor, Judas. Not all would be blessed not all would be blessed by Jesus because there was a betrayer who lived among them and deceived them all. But he lived among them and deceived everybody except Jesus. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew where the betrayal would come from. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe that I am who I am. So Jesus chose his 12 disciples. He knew what he was getting. Just like when he saves you and I, he knows what he's getting. He, he doesn't turn around and go, oh, I saved the wrong one. No, he knows what he's getting. He knows the package. He knows all the sin and all the faults and foibles, all the weaknesses. He knows all the good stuff and all the bad stuff when he saves his people. Now, this passage, this, when he's talking about choosing the 12, he's not talking about salvation there. But the point remains the same. God knows what he's getting. Jesus knew what he was getting when he chose his 12. He chose these 12 as his disciples, and he chose Judas, knowing that Judas would betray him. But he still loved and taught Judas. He still served Judas. He, presumably, he has just washed Judas's feet. But Judas, even though he was in that inner circle, even though he was taught by Jesus, even though he was ministered to by Jesus, he still rejected Jesus. Um, D.A. Carson says this, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil in an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. Jesus 
metaphorically and actually literally in a few verses that we'll look at next week, Jesus shared his bread with Judas and Judas would turn against him. He would lift his heel against Jesus and that fulfills that Psalm 41 that we read earlier, that verse that we read. And so Judas has received this symbolic washing, but this symbolic washing hasn't changed his heart. He was there and partaking, but he was still rejecting. And that reminds me about what happens here at the Lord's Supper. This is not something mystical that if you come and, and, and take it, it's going to magically make you better. We, we do call it a means of grace. If you are participating in the Lord's Supper with faith, you will be blessed through it and by it, or by God through it. But the thing is, you don't come to it to make you better. You don't come to it to clean you. You have to come in faith to Christ, and He does the work. But in fact, if you come without faith in Christ, then it does not, it does not give you anything. And that's what's happened here with Judas. He came without faith in Christ, and he had his feet cleansed, but he didn't actually receive the benefit of that. It didn't actually gain him anything because he was rejecting Christ. And so as we come in a moment and come here, we're coming in faith in Christ. And so that means if you don't have faith in Christ, then you don't come and partake. In fact, the scriptures teach us that if you are eating and drinking without considering Christ, you could be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. It's a serious thing. But Judas partook even though he was never clean. He also seemed to partake in the Lord's Supper. You need to be made holy in order for these things to be a benefit to you. But Jesus ends with this. This is our last verse. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Jesus reminds them of this chain of reception. If you accept the messenger of Christ... You accept Christ. And if you accept Christ, that in turn means you accept God the Father. These, this chain is linked. It could be here a reference to the Holy Spirit, where he says, whoever accepts anyone I send, because later Jesus is going to say, I'm sending the Holy Spirit. And so in receiving the Holy Spirit, we receive Christ, which in turn means we receive God the Father. this point remains for those who take God's message out into the world. If you receive God's messengers, if you receive the, the message that they have more to the point, then you receive Jesus himself. But his messengers are going to be like Jesus, the one who was humble and willing to wash his disciples' feet. So what? Where does that leave us now? Let me just recap let Jesus teach you how to be a disciple. We are living in the interim before he returns, just like the disciples were after Jesus left. So this teaching over these next few weeks is going to very much focus in on how we live in light of Christ not being here. But, or, or what the meaning of, of Christ's death and burial and resurrection has on our lives. But secondly, Jesus was the humble servant of God who debased himself even to the point of death on a cross. Thirdly, we put away pride. Even if you're, um, even if it seems, <laughs> even if it seems holy, pride has no place among God's people. Put it away. Fourthly, we follow the example of Jesus, willing to do the menial, willing to do the low jobs, the un, uh, unflashy, 
the, we should be willing to humble ourselves before our brothers and sisters in Christ and follow Jesus' example. But fifthly, it's, I suppose, a reminder that there are traitors in the midst. There are wolves in sheep's clothing, and the wolves and the sheep, uh, sorry, the, the, the traitors need to be warned that they need to receive the blessing. They need to turn to Jesus Christ in faith if they are to receive any blessing or benefit from belonging to Jesus. Let me pray and then let's share in the Lord's Supper together.